So welcome back, everybody. I am Lynn Gilliland. This is Lessons from Leaders, and I am so pleased to have Michelle Rudinsky with us. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you, Lynn. Thanks for having me here. You're welcome. And Michelle is the executive director for, well, she's also the co-founder. So I don't want to forget the co-founder because that's important. We're going to talk about that and the executive director for Spoon Foundation. And so since I already mentioned the co-founder, how we were going to talk about that, I, um, I'd like to start, Michelle, with just how you and, uh, 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 I don't know, you were acquaintances, were you? You had, you saw a need and you started Spoon. So, t- so tell us about that, how you yeah. got started. So in 2006, I adopted my oldest daughter um, from overseas in Central Asia. And there was a woman in my neighborhood. She and her husband also adopted a child from the same country at the same time. And we got to know each other. And um, she's my co-founder, Cindy Kaplan. And when I adopted my daughter, she was experiencing significant malnutrition that was Uh, I was not prepared for. It was unexpected to me. And um, I think I mentioned to you before, there is quite a story around her malnutrition and I used to tell it and I don't anymore because she's 21 and it's her story. But in in general, kind of the, the high level of it is, is that she had many diagnoses that were incorrect, that would have been sort of lifelong disabilities. They were not the correct diagnoses. It turned out she was malnourished. And as soon as she started getting good food, activity, attention, love, vitamins, vitamin D being the important one, iron, um, therapy, like physical therapy and whatnot. But as soon as she started getting all of that, she took off. She she literally grew seven inches in the first year after adoption. She um, started walking for the first time at age five. She talked up a storm right away, kind of went from being nonverbal to holding the most amazing conversations. And and so I just watched her kind of blossom in front of my eyes. And um, my co-founder, Cindy, had a similar experience with her younger son, where he had significant malnourishment. And we, um, we would get together just for playdates, quite frankly, and we started asking each other, like, are our kids unusual? Like, is this, is this happening to more children? And we started doing a little bit of research into, is malnutrition an issue for children living outside of families? So children in residential care, you know, that's called different things in many countries. Um, in our children's countries, it was called baby homes. That's like um, an orphanage for young children. And we started to kind of explore, is that an issue? And honestly, couldn't find any solid answers and could not find any organizations who are addressing that. Uh, We originally thought maybe we'll go do some volunteer work somewhere and we couldn't find an organization. And and so it just led to us reaching out to who ended up being the right people, networking with them and saying together, like, let's solve the problem. And so that, that was the beginning of Spoon. And I love that because that's why I wanted you to tell a story. It's a question, a curiosity, finding a need, and just step by step, you know, without um, without getting stopped by the how. You didn't say, well, how, who are we, or how will we do it? You just step, step, yes. step, right? 
Yes. And, and I think the step, step, step is very important. I, you know, in the beginning, we didn't know that this was a very large global need. We were asking a fairly small question, like, is it a need to begin with? Um, and is there, can we discover what the need is in one country in a few different baby homes? And so our first, well, the first great thing we did was find people who knew much more than we did. Mm. And they advised us very heavily. They became our first um, kind of a medical advisory board. And we didn't have staff. So they're the ones who designed the initial work and um, the model from the beginning. They're the ones who said, um, you need to partner with local partners. You need to find out if there is even a problem. And so we started out just doing a small study in I think it was eight baby homes to even ask, is this a problem? And there was some thinking among the advisors um, that it wouldn't be a problem because the country was providing three meals a day. You know, the government was providing three meals a day for these children, unlike maybe the children down the street living with their families, going to preschool or kindergarten, where maybe they had food insecurity. And so the thinking was that the children in the residential care facilities were going to be better off. But before we jumped in and ran programs, we did this study to find out if that was true. We partnered with, this was all in Kazakhstan, and we partnered with the Kazakh Academy of Nutrition, and they really ran the study and, and went with it. But what we found out was that the malnutrition rates for the children living in the community with their families was around 15%. That means 15% of the children had one or more indicator of malnutrition, like anemia, rickets, um, poor growth. For the children living in the baby homes, the malnutrition rate was 73%. So it wasn't even comparable. The children living in the government-run facilities had very, very high rates of malnutrition, as we saw in our own children. And um, so that was sort of step one. When you say step, 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 that was like, is it a problem? What's our model? And it was sort of solving for those, those steps first. And I also want to thank you for that story and pull out the, the people you had advisors. You asked for help and yeah. um, they gave you their time, even though you didn't know this field, you didn't know, um, you know, this wasn't your area. I, I think that's, something significant also that that people saw something in the both of you to give you their time and advice and wisdom they gave a lot of time too. this this yeah. was a group of um physicians and phds and you know scientists and they they gave hours and hours and traveled for us um you know traveled and helped advise and multiple times so yes they gave a lot of time right so what have you learned about being a leader? Since that's my favorite topic. What, what do you know now that, um, yeah, what have you learned? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. And there's a, a big answer, I suppose, over the years. So um, when we started out, Cindy and I as co-founders, I was working full time and I'm a single parent and, and she um, had, was not working. She, she was a parent of a child with significant needs, but she became the executive director. And so for the first, ooh, I, I can't remember my math, but I think eight years 
for the first eight years of Spoon, she was the executive director and I held multiple different positions depending on the need and our growth. And then I became the executive director in 2016. Um, and so even since 2016, I've learned a lot about being a leader. I think I'm a very different leader now than I was six years ago. And um, gosh, I don't even know where to start. I think I started out leading just kind of hoping everything would fall into place mm. and just sort of trusting that uh, things would happen as they were meant to happen. And there's some truth to that. I think that is the case sometimes, but I had to learn how to be much more intentional mm. and um, I had to plan things out and have goals and recognize that my initiation is what was really going to move things along. Um, and I'm still learning that to this day. Like sometimes I, I realize like, oh, I'm the one that's got to get that moving. Like that's on me and I've got to own it and take it, which isn't my usual personality. I'm, I'm more like working with everybody to move things along gently in their own time. And that, there's nothing wrong with that, but sometimes you do have to step up and get things done. I love the self-knowledge, the like knowing this is what's comfortable for me, but the organization or the staff also need me to do this other thing. And um, what I make up about what you're telling is you have to kind of remind yourself, oh, that's right, mm -hmm. because it's not yeah. your natural style, right? So right. you have to like, oh, yeah, that's, I got to do that too. Yeah. That's what I like about that story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what... So I'm also wondering, like, since you were the, you know, the do everything and then you became the, um, took over as the executive director, was it, what surprised you about being in that position that mm -hmm. you, you thought you knew, but then when you got in it, you were like, oh, I didn't realize this. Yeah, a lot. Um, how much fundraising is involved. So. Um, my co-founder, Cindy, is a natural fundraiser. I don't know that she'd call herself that, but she's good at it. And she made it look easy. And um, I don't think I realized how big of a role that would be. Um, also, I mean, just how things change constantly. And you have to be, you either have to be flexible and nimble and go with the changes, or you have to be one step ahead or a little bit of both. And I even would have said that before COVID, but of course, COVID's the, the big example of that, like things changing on a dime and having to be immediately responsive to that and able to go with it and not being too thrown by the constant need for change. And, you know, the way Spoon works, we don't, we don't just have uh, programs in one country or one region. We work all over the world, um, anywhere where we have solid partners and funding and relationships with the government. Those are sort of the three things that lead to a program. And that constantly changes. We might, in one period of time, have like six really solid programs in six different parts of the world. And all of a sudden, one ends and two more begin. And so there's constant need for um, being flexible, which my whole team is great at, by the way. I think that's one of the reasons we do so well. Congratulations. And uh, so yeah. through, <coughs> excuse me, through COVID, 
what what did you what did you have to shift what did you have to do things differently or take another look at things yeah can you name some of those things yeah um so our model before covid um we work in a lot of places but we don't have in country offices we always work with partners so our model was to travel to the location and do an intensive in-person training to kick off projects and then travel back later and do follow-up trainings or, or visits. So obviously that's all based on travel and large group gatherings, both of which, you know, ended one day, you know, all of a sudden we couldn't travel or train. And so we had to quickly, um, we were launched when in March, um, 2020, we were just about to launch a program in a new country in Tanzania, and we had been planning to go train. So we quickly had to shift our trainings online and figure out how to run our trainings remotely and then do all the follow-up and kind of monitoring remotely. And we were lucky that we already had developed an app, which we were using um, in the field and we can, it's real time, so we can see what's going on. And we were thinking to use that in some locations and didn't realize how critical it would be. And luckily it was ready to go at that point. So we were able to, we were able to within two months run that first training in Tanzania. And then over the next several months adapt it and, and make it even better so that we can use it ongoing. And so since then we've been running our, all our projects remotely. We haven't done zero travel for spoons since then. That will change in a couple of weeks. We're um, as we as we shift to the new normal or whatever we want to call it. Um, we will be doing some traveling and training in person, but not nearly as much because now we can do it remotely. Was it? Is this a time period when you when Spoon did you know responded and shifted in a way that you would you, that surprised you like you thought oh wow who knew it could be so responsive or did you already see that in in your dna oh a little of both i think it was in our dna but um so our t we have a team of about 12 people and man everybody just rose to the occasion and got it done in a way that it, it's a great team. So it wasn't entirely surprising, but it was surprising that we did it and got it and it works and it's probably a better model. That was maybe the surprising part. Oh, that's like, cool. Yeah. Like, Oh, yeah. this is better because there are places that are hard to get to um, as an American NGO and with, with a limited budget, right. With, I mean, we have a great huge need. There are 250 million children who could benefit from our services who, who fit into these, groups of children that we specifically target and they're in just about every country in the world. So the need is great. We're small. We can't go everywhere, but with this remote model, it allows us to have a much greater reach. Yeah. So it, it's a good thing that we shifted our model. Basically that's the surprise. I think. I love that story. Like I've heard lots of people shifting, but I love how you're like, this is actually a better model. I love how from <laughs> adversity you come, you came up with a, a way forward that's that seems at this moment in time preferable. It is. And then you think about who, who's in the field, in the programs, run, like running the trainings 
and doing the work. And it's the, the in-country partners and organizations who know, know the country, know the landscape, speak the language. They're the ones who take the training online. And so we don't always have to even show up which really is the way that it should be. It mm-hmm. should be about um, building capacity together. Um, you know, bring it, the in-country partner can bring their expertise to the table. We can bring our expertise to the table, um, come up with a way to run the program where they're running it and we're behind the scenes. And, and I think that's better anyway. That's lovely. So I, I just wanted to also um, tell a little something that you had told me earlier when you and I were talking about leadership. And one of the things that you said that you learned was that um, you thought introverts didn't make for good leaders. So I just, because I myself am an introvert and we know there's some prejudices about the abilities and capabilities of introverts. I wanted you just to, to touch on that if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, So when we had a shift in leadership from Cindy to me, it wasn't a natural definite thing that was going to happen. It just, um, her needs changed and we started thinking about what's the next step. And it hadn't occurred to me for quite a while that I could step into the executive director role. And one of the reasons, well, one was it was never my plan or on my sort of radar Um, that wasn't somewhere I thought I wanted to go. And um, I I, I was actually working with an executive coach at that time. It was Cindy's executive coach to help her through her transition. And I was working with him. And I remember during one meeting saying to him, like, wait a minute, do you think I could do this? Like, could I step in as executive director? And he looked at me like, well, of course you could. And it hadn't occurred to me. and, And one of the reasons was because I was an introvert and I, I knew that it's critical that an executive director, at least for Spoon, the executive director needs to do a lot of networking, a lot of fundraising, like I said, and um, even just sort of the internal work of leading staff. In my mind was like the work of an extrovert. And I now know that's not at all true. And, and I'm very aware as an introvert, like I, I love networking. It, it's not that introverts don't like networking or chatting. It's just um, maybe it wouldn't be their go-to. You know, maybe like if I had a choice of sitting at my desk and working all day with my head down or going out and networking with 50 people, I'd probably choose my desk. But I like the networking. I, um, it's actually one of my favorite things to do is to talk about Spoon with people. So I just had to make that internal shift like, oh, wait a minute, I've got the skill set for this. And, and it doesn't require an extrovert. There's also like the belief. So thank you for telling that because you added more color to it. There's also like this belief that I could do this. So there's like a little click that happened. Mm -hmm. Whoa, I I could do this. So that's another thing I wanted to, um, to pull out from your story. You have to shift, um, shift your thinking. Mm -hmm. So it could be you. Yeah. And it wasn't even that I was thinking I can't do this. And then I realized I could do this. It wasn't even on my radar that it would be a thing for me, which it's too bad, right? Like, why was that? Like, is that, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't have um, maybe better plans for where I could go. Um, Yeah. 
Yeah, but I, I don't think you're, that's um, unusual, especially yeah. for women. Yeah. Yes. yes. So if you look back at your trajectory, you can look back to whoever you want, mm -hmm. to whatever age. And what would, advice would you give your younger self? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a hard question. And I think maybe I just touched on it a little bit. Um, I, I think I would tell my younger self maybe to map out the future that I want for myself a little more intentionally and think about, mm. think about the potential for kind of personal and professional growth and, and to aim for that. Um, and granted, my younger self wouldn't have known the possibilities. My, my background is not in international development. I'm a speech language pathologist who kind of comes from the medical model background. So this wouldn't, I wouldn't have known this was a possibility, but I think mapping out um, more potential for growth um, and aiming for that is what I would tell my younger self. I love that. Thank you. So, I, I love your story. I love that, you know, I love the way you guys started, the way you just kept being curious, the way you, in my mind, you said, well, why not? Why not? Let's try this. Mm -hmm. um, and then just your own leadership, you know, to be like, well, wait, I could do this job. So I thank you so much for coming and sharing it with us. Um, I'm hoping that others can see themselves in your journey and take inspiration from that. Well, thank you so much, Lynn. I appreciate this opportunity and I love chatting with you. I love chatting with you. Oh, we didn't mention though, which I did want to mention, <clears throat> which is you had been telling me before we got on that you had your Spoon Foundation had been doing some work and, and suddenly right now in this moment as we're speaking, there's been a lot of fruition. I just wanted you to touch on that so we can celebrate with you. Oh, thank you. Yes. Um, you know, part of the last two years has been shifting our model and we did do that pretty quickly, but what we also had to do was sort of line everything up for the new way of doing work. And that takes time, new partnerships, new relationships and permissions, um, kind of getting buy-in at all different levels. And, and in the last couple of months, it's just all coming together. We launched a new program in Zimbabwe yesterday. We're launching a training in Croatia in a couple of weeks, which is also a new location and, and some other, other places as well. Like April and May are just going to be really, really busy. I mean, they've already been busy getting ready, but now it's all happening, which is very exciting. We would love to see it. Congratulations. I just Thanks. wanted to, you to be able to say that so we could celebrate with you. Thanks. So, Michelle, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and we will keep in touch with you. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, all. See you at the next one. <laughs>